Those are good songs that we are singing this morning. <clears throat> I, uh, I didn't say this in the first service, but as we're, I get to sing them twice when, when I'm here for both services, which is fun. But this service, as we were singing through those songs, I hope you notice that every week, there's a very intentional pattern uh, that we try to follow in our sung worship here. Jesse d- did this this morning, where uh, in, in about 20 or 25 minutes, we are reminding ourselves of the gospel every week in, in, in some way or another, um, pointing us back to the cross and why that's the ground of our hope. Uh, as we were singing these songs that Jesse selected this week, I was reminded of a pastor, Ray Ortland Jr. I don't know if you know who he is, but he uh, pastors a church now in Nashville called Emmanuel Nashville. I've been listening to some of his podcast sermons recently. But uh, at their church, Emmanuel Nashville, I love this. They have what they call the Emmanuel Mantra. And this is something they, I guess they obviously repeat frequently, I, I think maybe in their weekly worship, but their Emmanuel Mantra is three points. Number one, I am a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anyone can get in on this. And the way he explains, he says, number one, I'm a complete idiot. I love the way he puts it. He says, he says, there has been not one moment in my entire life that God has looked down on me and said, ooh, impressive. <laughs> not one minute. He says, but number two, my future is incredibly bright because of everything we sang in the song just before the offering, Right? that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, it's nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Christ has regarded my helpless estate, my idiotness, and has shed his own blood for my soul. And that third point, anyone can get on in on this because it's all of grace. It's completely done by Christ and offered to us as a gift. And uh, uh, thank you, just this, the songs this morning have gotten us there. And that's why that song we just ended with, we can say to our soul, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. I don't know what this week has maybe caused you uh, new things or ongoing relentless things has caused you to wonder whether or not the Lord is on your side. Maybe it doesn't feel like the Lord is on your side. The reminder that he is is not the evidence of what's transpired in your week. The reminder that he is is what we've just sung about right there. So I want to pause before we dive into Genesis 2 and our sermon this morning, which has everything to do with, again, our souls being still. Let me pray. God would help us um, do this again this morning. Uh, Lord, it's not, in some ways, it's not easy for us to admit with our, our mouth that we are idiots, that we are foolish, uh, that we make foolish decisions and we want things that you hate and that are not good for us and, and we think we know better and we're proud, proud and arrogant and, um, and ignorant. Um, Lord, it's hard for us to acknowledge and admit that, Lord, but it's so good for us to do that uh, in light of your goodness and your kindness that you uh, are near to the contrite and the lowly, um, the one who uh, is humble and repentant in heart. So Lord, we come to you this morning as best we can being repentant and humble and asking you um, to remind us of your grace for us that was secured because Jesus died and rose again. Um, We thank you that that hope is not in me or uh, any one of us, but in you, only you. God, we need rest for our souls. We need to be still and know that you're God and that you've made tremendous promises for us that you will not fail to keep. And uh, I pray that your spirit would encourage us in this way this morning through your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And turn to Genesis 2. If you're just visiting with us this morning, we are about three or four weeks into uh, a series going through Genesis 1 through 11. Not the whole book of Genesis. We might come back to the rest of Genesis later this year or maybe next year or or maybe not. But we've chosen Genesis 1 through 11 because it's sort of a a, a big block of Genesis. It's sort of a unit in and of itself that that takes us back to the very foundations of all things, the sort of primeval history of the world. And as Eric said a couple of weeks ago, Eric Tonis said it, it introduces us or it reintroduces us to the one true God. And it forces us to keep asking two questions. Who is God and who am I? It goes back and forth, those go hand in hand. Who is God? In light of who God is, who am I? And a couple of the things that we've already been reminded right out of the gate is that God is creator. God is maker. And that, for, for if you're a Christian, might be so um, uh, assumed by this point that it can lose its 
sense of impact on us, uh, it should make us really humble, but also very honored. The fact that we were created, that we are something that was once nothing that God brought into existence by the word of his power and continues to exist, even our very life and breath we owe to God, ought to make us humble and strip us of pride and cause us to bow before God from the heart and not raise ourselves up in our own mind as, as, as you know, equal to God or better than God or smarter than God. Um, but it also should give us a profound sense of dignity and self-worth that unlike anything that God's made, God made us in his image. Male and female, he made us to reflect him and to be more like him in this world than anything else that exists to actually reflect him and to know him and have relationship with him. And so that, sh- that ought to humble us, uh, but also give us a sense of dignity uh, and honor and wonder that why would God bless us like this? Why would God be so good? Last week, Randy, um, among many things, really hit that God is powerful and God is good. And all that, we, that God's made, we see his power and his goodness and his benevolence, his giving heart, which we're going to get to here Well, this morning, another uh, sort of answer to who is God and who are we comes in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So turn there. (coughs) Excuse me. And before we dive into those three verses, I want to take us to one little detour. Uh, An Adventure Week song from a few years back has been on my mind as I've been preparing with this passage and this sermon, and I'm pretty sure it was from Saddle Up Year. So I don't know how many of you guys have been around long enough to remember Adventure Week, Saddle Up Year. That's our country theme. Adventure Week is our kids' VBS that we do every summer. And uh, one of the songs that summer uh, was a memory verse song of Acts 17, 24, and 25. And I'm not going to sing it for you right now, but... um, uh, but I'll, I'll share it with you later if you want. Um, and and uh, the verse comes out of the context of Paul. The Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he travels into the city of Athens. And as he gets to Athens and is walking through the city, it says that his spirit is provoked within him. He's really bothered because everywhere he looks, there's idols and this God and that God and this temple and that altar and incense burning and food being laid out and all this religious fervor and activity to keep all of these different gods happy and appeased and worshiped properly. In fact, he even sees one altar and the inscription is to the unknown God. And they flat out just admit, hey, we might have missed one and we want to make sure we're not ticking that one God off. So let's make an altar to be a placeholder here and leave some stuff out for that God. And he's provoked because for all of the gods and all the altars and temples and all the religiosity he sees, they don't know the one true God. And he's concerned and he gets an opportunity to speak and crowd gathers and he brilliantly points at this tomb, this, or this, not tomb, the, uh, this altar to the unknown God Not Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, that's different. Altar to the unknown God. And he says, I know this God. Let me tell you about this God that you don't know. And listen to where he starts laying a foundation, introducing them to the one true God. This was the memory verse. The God who made the world and everything in it. So not the God who made this thing or trees or water or the sun, but the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's king. He reigns over it all. There is one God who's the authority over it all, Lord. And he doesn't live in temples that are made by hands. You can't cage him. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. What sort of God is this? I'm sure they're thinking is Paul says, the God who made everything... He actually didn't make us all to be his minions and to do the dirty work that's beneath him like the Greek gods, creating you know, people to sort of keep them happy and, and serve them like despicable me minions. The God who made the world and everything in it actually made us to give us life and breath and everything. That the very core of God's nature is he is a giver, which means we were made to receive. 
and not give God something back that he's lacking in any way. He doesn't need us to make us him a temple. I was thinking back, I don't know what you feel about The Simpsons, but way back in the early days of The Simpsons when I thought it used to be a pretty funny show, they used to make some really insightful little one-liners about God and theology. Usually it was bad theology, but it highlighted ways that we can tend to think about God. And there was this episode where Homer ended up, long story, on this like island with this tribal group of people and he's gonna help make their community better and he helps them build a casino because he thinks that'll, they'll have fun, fun with this. And it ends up going, you know, as you would imagine, like very horribly wrong and the whole thing, they all turn on each other, burn it down. So then he says, well, let's build a church. That's a good idea. God must be angry with us. So he leads them all to build this church and they work really hard and they build the church. And at the end, they all stand back and his line is, we sure built God a great cage, didn't we? God's not like that. He doesn't need us to build him a house to dwell in. He doesn't need us to serve him with our hands as if he needed something he himself gives. In fact, he built his own temple, really. Genesis 1, all of creation is sort of described as if God himself builds. Here, I'll build a temple. It's all of creation. And now I'll dwell in it with the people in my image that I've made and I'll be their God and they will be my people and they will enjoy me in the temple I've provided. That's where Paul begins. If we don't understand this, then we won't understand God and we won't understand the gospel. That the arrangement is we're on the receiving end. God is the giver. And I think the foundations of that truth about God and us is right here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And what happens on the seventh day once everything is created? Let me read it. Let me steal back one verse starting in 131. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he, that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Normally, I like to give you all my points up front so you know what they are. I'm going to change that up. I'm going to give you one at a time, build a little bit of suspense as we go along here. But there's four, so you'll know if I miss any. Uh, if, you, if you get to the end, you don't have four. So we'll get through them, though. Number one, main point this morning, is this. We were created to rest in God. We were made to rest in God. And by rest, I don't just mean do nothing, just nap, be lazy and indolent. We, 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 resting in God, I, I mean living in complete trusting dependence upon God for everything. So this sort of rest could be quite busy, right? God created an ad, Adam and Eve and then said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and tend it and, and build things in it and, and be very quite active. But in all that activity, to live in such a way that you are completely trustingly dependent upon God as the giver and the creator. So I mean by we were made to rest in God, to live in trusting dependence upon him as the giver of life and breath and everything. The reason I think these three verses are, make that point is because the four things it says that God did, I think by implication then mean what we are then to do is rest in him. Let me show you what I mean. Four things God does, they come in pairs. The first two, it says that on this seventh day, he finished and rested. Twice it says he finished. He finished creating everything, the heavens and the earth and all of its hosts. So everything that exists and everything that fills up everything that exists, verse one, he finished. In verse two, he finished his work that he had done. And then it says he rested. So he finished working and then he rested. He ceased. He didn't need a, a refresher. He didn't expend any energy in creating. He didn't need rest like we need rest when we work. But he ceased. He completely stopped. No more creating activity. The question is why? Why did he stop? He stopped for the same reason that a good artist stops. Good artists know when to stop, don't they? Right, Laura? 
I think you're a good artist. I'm thinking you probably know when to stop. Maybe sometimes it's hard. But a bad artist keeps drawing and erasing and it doesn't, and I can't get it quite right. And then you just keep trying and then I mess it up even more. But, but it's like God is like an artist and he's creating and creating. It's like an artist that puts the final touches on and stands back and looks and then puts the brush down and says, that's exactly what I intended right there. Doesn't need another brush stroke. God looks at all that he'd created. It was very good. And he ceases doing any more creating because that's perfect. It's complete. It's sufficient. It has everything needed for my purposes, God is saying, in his ceasing and finishing. Nothing lacking. I like the way John Calvin, the the imagery he used for this. He says, this world was in every sense completed as if the whole house were well supplied and filled with its furniture so that nothing should be wanting or lacking uh, to its suitable abundance. You know, realtors use the term turnkey. You know what that means? Turnkey, a house that's turnkey. It means all you got to do is move in. You don't have to add anything, fix anything, furnish anything. You just walk right in and enjoy the house. And and Calvin's saying, it's like that. It's like God is saying right here, my creation is turnkey. Has everything needed to now enjoy it. For me to dwell here within it and among it and for my people to enjoy me in it. The second two things God then does display his delight and satisfaction with his finishedness. It says he blessed the seventh day and then he made it holy or he set it apart. He, he made, there's something different and unique now about this seventh day than these other days of creating. This day that's marked by not creating is unique and set apart as holy and special and blessed even. Blessed even in, in Genesis 1 has the, the sense of there's, there's promise. Uh, so the two times in chapter 1 it says that God blessed. He blessed all living things making and then says be fruitful and multiply. And he blesses Adam and Eve and he says be fruitful and multiply. The blessing seems to be everything's ready now to, to grow and bloom and, 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 and enjoy. And here with his creation he blesses this seventh day. Notice two things here that it doesn't say in these verses that we could sort of import back into here because we know, if, if you know the Bible, later on there becomes a Sabbath day and Israel's observed, as we're going to see later, uh, to, to rest one day of the week, their work week, and not do any work on it. And so there's, there's observance of a Sabbath day for people. But notice here, there's no talk here about people observing anything. This is just right now dealing with God and what God did on the seventh day. The second thing that's noteworthy here is that days one through six all end with this pattern, right? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And he creates more things. There was evening and there was morning. And it gets to the seventh day here and he finishes and rests and he blesses it and he makes it holy. And it doesn't say and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. The seventh day seems to be something that is now just this new state of complete finishedness. I think like this, this is, Guy, uh, A.G. Shetty teaches at uh, Moore College in Sydney, Old Testament and Hebrew. And I, I got this, he was uh, from an article he wrote on rest, the theme of rest through the scriptures. And he says of this Genesis, uh, this Genesis 2 seventh day rest of God, he says, God seems to be blessing here, not later on this day of observed rest weekly like Israel's gonna observe, but no, the fact of his creation, its completeness and its ongoing existence When God sanctified the seventh day because on it he ceased creating, he wasn't celebrating or commemorating days one to six, but declaring his new state of not creating to be blessed and holy. The state within which Adam and Eve were to live and to flourish and to to enjoy him forever, this was blessed and holy. And And we were made to rest in it and enjoy it forever. So that's point one. We were made to rest in God, to live and enjoy trustingly, trusting that everything provided that we needed, even the one good boundary that God had put in in the garden is for our good. Point number two. It's my longest point this morning because even though it might seem obvious to us, I want us to really get it. We are really bad at resting in God. That's point two. 
starts right out of the gate with Adam and Eve. And their failure essentially was a, a refusal to rest in God. If you think about it, God says to them, I've given you everything you need, everything. Even the boundary, don't eat from this tree, is a good boundary. It's this reminder of who's God and who isn't. Trust me in this. Eat everything I've given you and enjoy it. Try And trust me, this is not what you need right here. Don't eat from this tree. And Satan comes and the temptation that he whispers into Eve's ear and into Adam's ear is there is something else besides all of the completeness that God has now provided for you. There's something else that would bring more rest or better rest, something better than what you already have. God's holding out on you because he knows that if you have that, it'll be better. And that lie gets believed and they reach it and they eat it and they take things into their hands. But ultimately it's, it's, it's seeking a rest, a, 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 even more goodness than what God had already given them. And they find that they were wrong and the curse comes and God subjects creation to futility. He says, this world is not gonna work for you in the way that I originally intended. It's gonna work against you. Pain is gonna be involved. Difficulty, sweat, weeds, thorns, sickness, decay. Your life is not gonna be as, e- it's not gonna be e- as easy to rest in me uh, as it once was. Sin is entered in right now. And I think if you could even say there's a gracious aspect to the curse, I would say even in God subjecting the creation to suffer, to, to, to futility and, and brokenness like this is a, is a sort of hidden grace because in, in a fallen world, we are constantly reminded that if we seek our rest anywhere else from God, we won't find it. And when we struggle and suffer, it draws us back in dependence. It points us back to our need for God, our need for a rescuer, someone who can heal us and bring us back out of this state. But Adam and Eve were bad at resting in God when they decided to redraw the boundaries uh, as they saw fit according to what felt good and right to them and what their hearts desired and not what God had said to them was enough. They didn't find rest. They found pain and death. But God is relentless through the Bible at giving people rest. We refuse it. We're bad at it. And he doesn't give up on bringing about a state in which he has people who are living under his care and provision and protection who are resting in him. He's relentless at it. And so after Adam and Eve, he hasn't given up. In Genesis 12, he, he, he's going to begin with Abraham. And he's, his plan is, I'm going I'm to make you, Abraham, into a nation, a people. And I'm going to interact with you, in this nation, Israel, in a unique way. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to set up an arrangement, a covenant with you, whereby I will take you and plant you in a land of rest and you will be fruitful and, and enjoy it there and things will grow for you and you will have all that you need as long as you rest in me and trust in me and the agreement with the, the, of this covenant, I will be your God and I will bless you in such a way and you will know rest so that all the nations around will see you, Israel, and will know that yours is the one true God. But when all of this finally came to be and Abraham had gone to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and into Israel and now they're in Egypt and they're slaves and God sends Moses to rescue them, the history of Israel is this cyclical pattern of failing to rest in God. Just think about it. So here they are, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're praying, their cries, God of Abraham, don't you have, you, have you forgotten us? And God hadn't forgotten and sends Moses and Moses shows up and by God's mighty hand, he plays the ultimate game of say uncle with Pharaoh through the plagues and Pharaoh's stubborn. He doesn't want to let his slaves go and God sends a plague and Pharaoh says no and he hardens his heart, sends another plague. How about now? No. How about now? No. Keeps going. Finally, he says, I give, get out of here. And he sends Israel off, the nation of Israel off. Get out of here. And and Moses leads them out into the wilderness and they're headed to a land of rest that God has promised. And they saw these amazing plagues that God poured out on Egypt and didn't fall on them somehow. And God delivered them. And they get not far out, if you know the Bible stories, and they get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh has a change of heart, doesn't he? 
and he says, I, I, I want my slave labor back. And he sends the armies out after them and the chariots and the horses and they're, and they're flying out to, to go bring Israel back. And Israel sees them on the horizon and they're up against this huge body of water and they're like nomads on the way to, and they, they, they think God's got this, right? Remember the plagues? God, I can't wait to see what God's gonna do, right? No, they immediately think, why did God bring us out here to kill us when he could have just killed us in Egypt? They've already forgotten the plagues. God is so gracious. Here's what he says to them through Moses. He says, Moses, tell them this. Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Again, who, who in the relationship is the giver? Who's the receiver? The Egyptians whom you see today, this army that's bringing up this dust cloud on the horizon of swords and sharp pointy things and death, he says, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. Here's your job. You have only to be silent. You just stand there and don't talk and watch. And he does in this powerful way. He parts the sea and they walk through on dry ground. It says the, like walls of water on either side until the last child is across on dry ground and then whoo, drowns Pharaoh's armies. And it says in the text in Exodus that the people saw it. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. They saw the chariots. They saw the, the bodies washing up to the shore. And they break into song. Miriam, Moses' sister, composed, I wonder how this works. It seems as you read it like they just broke into it, but somehow she would have had to write it and then they would have had to learn it. But anyway, they ended up singing this song that Miriam writes that's about their triumphant rescuer, deliverer, army shattering God. And the chorus is something like the horse and his rider, he's hurled into the sea. And the final lines of this song of Miriam, they say, and here's what he's gonna do. They say to the Lord, you will bring the people you have purchased in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, the safe place, O Lord, which your hands have established. In other words, you will give us rest. It sounds like they're finally getting it at this point, but no, very next chapter, very next verses after this, they're a few days out and water starts getting scarce and they come to one source and they go to drink it and it's bitter, it's totally undrinkable. And their thought is, I can't wait to see what God's gonna do, right? Just saw the Red Sea and the army and the horse and his rider. They probably were still humming that song. But no, they grumble against God. Why did God bring us out here to kill us? And again, he provides them with water in a miraculous way. He doesn't just lead them somewhere else to find fresh water. He actually turns the bitter, undrinkable water into drinkable water, provides for them very clearly, miraculously, and they drink. And listen to his patience again with them. He says to the people, listen, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what's right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes... In other words, if you will rest in me, trust me, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I'd put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. If you'll just rest in me, trust me, I want to be your healer. Not your punisher and judge, but your good, gracious, providing king. But they don't get it. Next scene, we need food. They start getting hungry, it says. God tests them in this to see, will they get it? Will they diligently listen? Or will they, again, assume that he's unfaithful? And they assume he's unfaithful. And listen to the way that, that Scripture records their complaints about God when they get hungry. It's laughable. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. <laughs> that should be funny. Sadly, for you, God, have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. My paraphrase of that. Remember all that rest we had in Egypt? Wasn't that great? The bricks without straw, all that bit. Remember, remember how great that was? No. So here's what God says. Okay. Behold, 
I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm going to feed you from the sky every day. And the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And there's two tests sort of in the way that he's going to provide bread from heaven. The first test is this. Each day, one through six, go out, just collect what you need for that day. Eat it, enjoy it, go to bed, no leftovers, no Ziploc, no Tupperware for tomorrow. I want to test and see if you believe I will never miss a delivery. Ever. Trust me in this. Day one, they all go to bed. Everyone saves leftovers. Gets up the next morning, rotten, stinking, filled with worms. They get to the sixth day. Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. So the first introduction of a Sabbath day now into Israel's weekly routine is actually here before the fourth command. He says, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you're going to boil, and all that's left over, lay aside to be kept until next morning. Do exactly what I told you not to do on days one through six, or days one through five on day six. Save leftovers this day. Why? He says, so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today, you won't find it in the field. Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, oh, I need to go to the next slide, don't I? I'm terrible at this. There will be none. And so they do it. Sure enough, on the seventh day, what they saved wasn't rotten, no worms. And so they eat it on the seventh day. And they make their meal and they sit down. And I imagine at some point they all had finished their meal and they're full. And you know what some of them did? Some of them said, hey, do you want to go out and look for more manna? (laughs) And they do. They go out looking for more, even though he said, you will not find it in the field. Their bellies are full and they go looking for it. They still don't get it. Next scene, they get to Mount Sinai and God establishes this covenant and he gives them the law. These are some, part of the arrangement, part of the way God, you're, you will rest in me as your God and I will be your God. It, it comes with the law. And the fourth command is actually taking this Sabbath day and, and if making it official and saying, I want this to be a weekly observance for you. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it set aside as distinct. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, that's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, are you getting this? Or the sojourner who is within your gates. Don't even make other people work on the Sabbath. No work on this day. One day every week, no work. And we're told a couple of things in Exodus and then Deuteronomy that this day every week is supposed to remind them. It's supposed to be a rhythm, a pattern of grace in their week that reminds them of two things. First is this in Exodus 20, 11. As you observe this day, remember, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in other words, every week as you are not working, let it remind you that in the very beginning, God made us to rest in him and not the other way around. He rested on the seventh day. Let this weekly rhythm remind you one day every week that you are made to rest in God every day of every week. It's a help. Well, 40 years goes by and there's a whole other part of the story I can't tell, but they end up finally getting into the land one generation later because the generation that left Egypt by and large failed to trust God and they got right up to the edge of the land and even though God said, go on in, it's yours, they doubted him and he says, all right, your generation won't enter. And so they're on the edge of the land of rest, about to enter it and occupy it and enjoy it and God reestablishes the covenant with them and reminds them of the law and when he reminds them of the Sabbath command again, he gives them a second reminder. He says this on that day, you shall remember every Sabbath that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord, your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, uh, the Lord, your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So don't just remember that God made you in the first place to rest in him, but also remember that even though you were, you failed to rest in him, he graciously and lovingly rescued you and brought you into the land of rest you're living in now. So Israel, as you are enjoying that rest every week, as you you observe Sabbath rest, let it also remind you that 
This place that we're living in, we didn't build it. And we didn't fit fully furnish it. God did. We're eating stuff that we didn't plant. And we're living in houses that we didn't build. And we're protected behind walls that we didn't build. God furnished it for us. And then it was turnkey for us. One day every week, remember this. So Israel enters the land. And they begin to enjoy the rest and, and, and obey covenant the covenant commandments, but not for long. The history of Israel goes on, as some of you know, to be a pretty ugly thing. A pattern of, of failing to rest in God, either running from God or outwardly going through the motions and resting in God while inwardly hearts far from God. They, keep, they, they profane the Sabbath all the time, sometimes by keeping it religiously, but then the rest of their life shows that to be a sham and that they really don't trust and, and love the Lord. Sometimes they just abandon uh, the Lord for other idols of other nations and they go seeking their own rest and protection from the gods of the other nations. And their pattern of inability to keep Sabbath and keep the whole of the law is indicative of this, this, this sin nature of I can't rest in God. So if God finally says enough, if you won't rest in me, I'm going to remove you from the place of rest, the land of rest, and I'm going to send you back into slavery. And he allows Babylon to come in and take over and destroy, and Jerusalem is wiped out, and the temple's destroyed and, and plundered, and, and, and most of the people, the best of the people, are taken off to live in Babylon outside the land. And even then, there's this relentlessness in God's kindness and graciousness. He doesn't give up and say, forget it. A time goes by and he turns the heart of King Cyrus, this pagan king, to allow Israel to go back into the land of rest and to rebuild the city and the temple and to live there again. They get another chance. And the book of Nehemiah comes in, which one of our women's Bible studies is beginning to study right now. And they begin to rebuild and they remind themselves of the law and the arrangement with God. And they commit themselves to rest in God according to this covenant. And you get to Nehemiah chapter 13 and one day Nehemiah goes out and you know what he sees people doing? Business as usual on the Sabbath, plowing their fields on the Sabbath, conducting business on the Sabbath. And he's like, ah, this is, this is why I said that. He says, did not your fathers act this way? And didn't God bring all this disaster on us and this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. God really wants you to rest in him. Why can't you get this? Is what Nehemiah is saying. One last scene. What's it like when Jesus finally comes? How is it going in Israel, resting, on the, resting in God and observing Sabbath? Well, Israel show, uh, or Jesus shows up and Israel's religious leaders have turned this commandment that was made to be a blessing. The, the Sabbath is made for man, not the other way around. And they had turned this commandment to keep Sabbath into probably the most burdensome of all the commands, the most difficult one to keep now. Ironic, right? The commandment that is so specifically and obviously for your rest and your enjoyment of God has now become this thing that nobody can keep and this burden that people are crushed under. It started with a good intention, I think. It started with maybe finally getting what Nehemiah was saying. Oh, God really cares about us keeping Sabbath. Let's really make sure we don't break Sabbath. How are we gonna do that? Well, we can't work on Sabbath. Okay, well, what's work? All right, well, let's define it. Everything that is possibly construed as work to God, let's make rules about that. You can't do any of those things on the Sabbath. And there's one fence. And then they say, okay, but there's lots of things that might accidentally lead us to do those things that kind of look like work. And so let's make rules about those things. And let's make rules about those things so I can't even get anywhere near possibly accidentally breaking Sabbath unintentionally. And this system of having trying to keep Sabbath was like this crushing weight that nobody could keep. I don't think there's any more compelling evidence that we're really bad at resting in God by turning his one command to rest into the hardest work to keep. Do you ever stop and just think, of all the commandments in the Bible, wouldn't you think the one that we all have no problem with would be don't work? Honestly, don't work. Maybe if you tell me eat carbs, that's the one command I could keep easier than that. 
no problem with that, right? But just don't work. But we obviously can't get that because not working in this sense means trusting and relinquishing the word Jesse used, control and care to God. We're really bad at resting in God. Some of these ways that we've been thinking about, Adam and Eve and Israel, we fail to rest in God in these ways, don't we? Can you agree with me? We fail to rest in God when we assume we know better than God's good commands and boundaries and we see the way he's ordered things to be insufficient for my maximum happiness and we redraw the lines as we see fit and then pursue them. We fail to rest in God that way and we treat God the same way Adam and Eve did, as stingy or as backwards or as withholding and not insanely good. We fail to rest in God like that. We fail to rest in God like Israel when we, whenever we assume he either doesn't know what's best for us or he doesn't care what's best for us or he doesn't uh, intend to be my provider the way I have, have determined he needs to be my provider according to my timeline. And we basically think as if God is an unfaithful God and not a faithful God. Just like Israel, we grumble all the time even though we with our own eyes have seen countless evidences that God will provide for us. None greater than the cross, like we started with. We all fail to rest in God when we just ignore him. We try to live life off our own fumes, off our own uh, wisdom, off our own cleverness, off our own skill set, off our own bank account. And we just treat God as this sort of irrelevant, you know, being in our life that I only go to if I really get myself in a bind. But when I operate in a godless sort of way, I'm essentially refusing to rest in God and saying, no, I I like to provide my own rest, thanks very much. And we also fail to rest in God when when we try to make God happy the way that Israel was doing when Jesus showed up where we actually turn all of his commands and the intention of him into a way to secure God's happiness and keep, the, keep God happy. We, t- and we have to serve him and work for him and secure his blessing. And we need God's help in all of this and that's why Jesus came. God has helped us in our, our problem, our, our, our horrible problem with failure to rest in God. He did it by sending Jesus. The Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us so that he could ransom us and, and create a new creation work. That's what, what, redemp- what salvation is. It's a, a work of God recreating. God's going to create, a, a start again, a new people for his own possession. And he will be the giver and we will be the receivers. And that's why Jesus came. He comes on the scene and he never breaks Sabbath or any law for that matter. And not just because he's the God man, emphasis on God, and it was just easy for him, but because he is, as a man, entrusting himself to God the Father at every step of his life. As a child, as a young man, as an adult, he entrusts himself to the Father and he obeys and he does the Father's will all the way to the very end of his mission that he was sent for to give his life as a ransom for many. And with his very last breath. His whole life is offered up to get us out of this problem. So point number three is this. Jesus perfectly rested in God. You know, one of the songs we sang earlier comes right out of Matthew 11. Listen to the way Jesus talks to people who are crushed under this burden of trying to, to earn their rest with God and failing. He says, (laughs) <laughs> not that, did not your father. Uh, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is this yoke easy and is this burden light that Jesus invites us to take up? Burden and a yoke sounds like heavy lifting. It's because he's done all the lifting and pulling. And he does that by coming and perfectly resting in God and trusting himself completely to God at every step where we have failed and then laying his life down as a ransom for all of our failure. And in the same way, get get this, in the same way that God finished his creating work and rested from it, done, and then turns and blesses and makes holy this state of finishedness as, as a blessing for us. Christ comes and finishes and rests from his redeeming work at the cross with his last breath, yells, it is finished, and, and gives up his spirit and is buried for our sin. 
And then he invites us to enter into the rest that he's won. Only because of his merits. It's amazing. It reminded me of the, the Easter hymn that we sing that we should sing other times other than Easter. I don't know why we don't. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. But there was a point, I was sitting two weeks ago in my office over there Wednesday, and I was thinking, I'd been thinking for two days about all the failures of Adam and Eve and Israel and how I see myself there and was thinking about how there's not one day of my life that I could say, I, I completely entrusted myself to God that day. I was just so aware of my failure and my inability to rest in God. And, the, and, and this third verse from Christ the Lord is risen today popped into my mind. Love's redeeming work is done. Hallelujah. Fought the fight, the battle won. Hallelujah. Death in vain forbids him rise. Hallelujah. Christ has opened paradise, rest. That's where we started in the beginning. That's what we forfeited when we sinned. And now Christ has come and the redeeming work is done. It's finished. He's rested from it. God, Jesus doesn't have to do anything else to, to more fully redeem you and cover your sin than he's already done and finished. He's opened paradise, meaning rest for us. And here's how we get it. Point number four, you can find your rest in God forever, starting now, by resting from your works, which sounds upside down, sounds contradictory. Here's what I mean. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up this theme of rest again. Kind of the, the, the book ends it in all of salvation history. Here's where this is all aiming at. Hebrews is basically one long sermon about Christ's redeeming work, how it is better than anything else every other shadow that was pointing to it throughout the Old Testament, how his once for all death in our place for sin for all time is sufficient and perfect and we should never drift away from it. That's what Hebrews is about. And Hebrews chapter three says, here's how we enter into that rest. He says, it's not by working harder, it's by faith. Hebrews 3.13 says, when you have placed your complete trust in Christ alone, you come to share in Christ. And chapter four, verse three says, uh, or sorry, let me back up. Chapter four, nine and 10 says, here's what we share in Christ. It says this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, how do I enter God's rest? Well, I rest from my works. Wait, what does that mean? Well, a few verses before that, it said, we who have believed enter that rest. So put those together. We who have believed enter that rest. We who have rested from our works enter into that rest. The belief is in the complete sufficiency of Jesus' work in your place that you add nothing to. And by believing in that, you actually are resting from your works and entering into God's rest. It's amazing. The next verse, I don't have on slide, but then says, another thing that sounds contradictory, therefore let us strive to enter into that rest. Again, in the implication, we're really bad at resting, right? We're really bad at, at actually acknowledging and just believing and trusting uh, in what Christ has done. We're really bad at that. We have to strive to enter that rest. I hope this brings an incredible sense of relief to you and joy. I was sitting in my office and I came to that moment and that hymn verse came to my mind. My mind. For about five minutes, the Lord just, I just sat there in tears in my chair with this simultaneous awareness of my utter insufficiency to ever rest in God and Christ's perfect redeeming work being done and the smile of God on me because of that. In that moment, it was like saying, God, please help me to sustain, to sustain that view because it's hard to sustain that view throughout our week, isn't it? That's why we need this weekly gathering and reminder. So as we finish here, one last hymn had come to my mind. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul and for your soul. That's what Jesus did. He bore the dreadful curse for your soul. And those words come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's saying to you, if you have never done that at all in the first place, you've never come to God through Jesus like that. You've never actually admitted to God, God, I actually cannot rest in you. I have utterly failed. I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve your goodness. If you understand for the very first time this morning what an amazingly gracious God 
he is and what a beautiful Savior Jesus is. You can come to him this morning and take his yoke and his burden for its light and you do it by this, believing in what he's done for you and surrendering your life to him. But it's the same invitation for you if you've trusted the Lord and walked with him for years or decades. Same invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You're reinvited every day back into this rest that Christ has already won for you that we just have trouble enjoying and being still in. So we have a couple minutes. I want to give you a chance to just pray. How do you need to turn this into prayer uh, personally right now? And then I want to pray for you and then we'll close with, I think, a perfect hymn for this morning. Father, I want to pray for, for these people I love here this morning in the different ways that Today, we're probably struggling to rest in you. God, for those this morning who are aware that they're failing to rest in you by, um, uh, in unrepentance, in, in, in some aspects of their life, pursuing what they know is sin and, and an unwillingness to give that up and repent of it, seek your forgiveness and to walk in a new way because they like it and they're enjoying it too much to, to walk away from. God, I pray that you'd help I see this morning that that leads to death and that we can trust you and that obeying your commands and following what you call us to do and to not do is actually an invitation to life. And I pray that you'd lead, uh, bring about repentance in hearts and assurance that Jesus' forgiveness extends even over that. God, pray for those of us who are struggling to rest in you because in, in discontentment or grumbling, or fear, or worry right now. And even though we would profess with our mouth that you are a faithful God, our, the, our attitudes and our emotions say otherwise, that we somehow have a f- suspicion that maybe you're going to be unfaithful, or that you or you don't care. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for that. pray that these reminders of these wonderful, powerful stories of your provision would, would sort of uh, reassure us again that the waves and winds still know your voice who ruled them while you dwelt below. God, I pray for those of us who are failing to rest in you um, because we want to prove to you um, our worth. And we want you to look at us and say, oh, impressive. I pray you'd forgive us of that, set us free for that, that, that inclination that we have to want to have something that we've provided that validates us. Help us to find our joy in being completely forgiven because of Jesus. And uh, Lord, I pray then that you would help us be Christians and a church who um, this motivates the, the whole of our lives. It motivates obedience. It motivates mission. God, I pray that you would remind us this week as we interact with neighbors and family and coworkers that we want people to know this rest that we've found and been given through Jesus and that that would encourage us to be bold and to ask questions and to, um, and to talk about Christ with people who don't know him. Lord, we want people, more people uh, to, to come into this rest through Jesus. We pray all this and more in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.